But we're here in the midst of a sermon series. Uh, We're starting or we're continuing on looking at the signs of Christ, the signs that the book of John give us. And the writer, the author of John gives us about who Christ is and what Christ has done. And today I want us to answer the question or look at the topic, what are the dangers of misinterpreting the signs? So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to begin looking in John chapter 5 today, and we're going to try to look at the dangers of misinterpreting the signs. But as you're turning there, I want to also direct your attention. So this is an opportunity for you to be multitasking, have your hands be going this way. But I want you to to direct your attention to the screen, and I want you to look at this sign that is up here. What does this sign mean? Think about it real quick. Like when you see this sign, what does it mean? I want you to know that there are many people that interpret this sign in many different ways. And I want us to walk through some of those interpretations. If you're a driver or a new driver or someone that has recently had to take their driver's test, this sign literally means caution, slippery when wet. The the ground is going to be slippery when wet. So if you're driving on this road and you see that it's raining, be cautious because there's something about the road conditions that make it a little bit extra slippery. So that's what it means to you. But if you're a child of the 80s and 90s, this sign means two different things to you. You can interpret it many different ways. One, slippery when wet, or this opportunity we see here is a picture of skids. Now, how many of you guys remember skids? Raise your hand loud and proud. How many of you guys actually had a pair of skids? Okay. How many of you wished you had a pair of skids? How many of you are glad that that fat is gone. All right, good. Yeah. Skids were a thing of the 80s and 90s where you'd wear these loud colored and loud print pants that really weren't made of much except for they had a little tag on them that said Skids on it. And that was the logo. Now, those are super expensive pants for me and my, my life. So I never had a pair of Skids. I always wanted a pair of Skids. But to me, when I see the, the Skid or slippery when wet symbol driving down the road, it always makes me think of my childhood and it brings back bad feelings about being left out and all this other stuff because I didn't have skids and everyone else did. And so it's a bad interpretation. It brings bad memories to my mind. But it also may mean to you, if you're a child of the 80s and 90s, uh, Slippery When Wet was also the title of an album by Bon Jovi. How many of you guys actually purchased that album? Okay, good. So when you see that, I see some of those hands, amen. That's good. That's good. Now you've since like, gotten rid of those albums, right? You're no longer listening to them. Anyway, so when we see certain things or we see certain signs, there's, there's a challenge for us to really identify the, the ways that we interpret them. We may interpret them correctly or we may interpret them incorrectly. So go back to the first sign, if you can. The actual road sign is something that is providing caution for us. Now, if we misinterpret it, we can um, go down a path that could possibly lead to death. For example, if you're driving down the road and you're like me, and that picture brings up bad memories and it's raining outside, it could lead to death if I do not listen to or heed the caution of that sign. And today, as we come to the Word of God, as we're going to walk through this passage in John chapter 5, I want us to see that there are two main groups as Jesus is talking and Jesus is revealing who he is and why he's come and what he wants to do. We see that there are possibilities and what has happened is that there have been those that have misinterpreted signs from the past and now they're walking towards the end of their life that is not going to lead to a life of happiness but it's going to lead to a life of destruction. So let's look in John chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which was five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. As there was a crowd in the place, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And it was, that was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have gone out of your way in the most loving way to reveal yourself to us so that we may know you and we may know how to be saved. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes today to help us see our need for you. Help us to see that we are not people that have it all together, that we are people that are in need of you, in need of your grace, in need of your mercy, in need of your love. And so, Father, I pray in these next few moments you take our minds Help them to focus in on you. Take our hearts. Help us to feel you. Father, I pray you take our eyes. Help us to see you. Would you move in these next few moments? Would you speak so that we may hear and so that we may be changed? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to this passage, before we go into misinterpreting the signs, what I want us to see are, real quickly, I want us to look at what this sign reveals to us about Jesus, what it shows us more about who he is and what he has come to do. And so if we look here at this passage, we can see that, that surrounding this passage, there's a lot of stuff going on, and we can see a lot about who Jesus is. The first thing that we see in this passage about Jesus is we see that Jesus cares for the needs of the urban context. We see that Jesus cares for the needs of the urban context. As we've been walking through some of these signs, we see that Jesus began in Canaan and Galilee. We see he was in, not in Capernaum, but he has been in the suburbs, if you will. He has been spending time with the people that are in around the Sea of Galilee in a place that wasn't as densely populated, but we see that Jesus in his plans has come down to Jerusalem before, and we didn't see much in the book of John of what took place in that first trip uh, to Jerusalem, but now we see Jesus doing something as he comes down to Jerusalem again. He understands the needs of the city. He understands the way that it works. He understands what's going on, and he sees that in the, in the city there are lots of needs. 
There are people with physical needs. There are people with spiritual needs. There are people with all kinds of needs within the city. And if you go in the city, and if you open up your eyes in the city, you can see that there are a myriad of people with a myriad of needs. And we see on this day, Jesus coming into the urban context and speaking and being a part of one of the greatest needs in Jerusalem. For we see that there was a multitude of people on this day that were invalids, that were weighing, they were hanging out around this pool. And so Jesus goes and seeks to be there among the people. So the second thing that we see about Jesus from this passage is that he cares for the low. Jesus cares for those that society doesn't see as having much importance. Jesus cares for the low. We see in the first sign that Jesus cares for his mom. His mom came to him that one day and says, I have a request. And so Jesus hears and Jesus does, and we see that he cares for that. Last week we saw that Jesus cared for the Roman officials. So we see someone that may have had a higher standing in the society at that time. Jesus cares for them. And today we're going to see that Jesus even cares for the least of the community. He goes to the dirty, he goes to the downcast, he goes to those that are in need, and he goes to the people that the world seeks to avoid. Next, what we see about Jesus in this passage, is we see that he is now positioning from being the one that is sought to being the one that is seeking. For in the first sign, we see that Jesus' mom came to him and sought Jesus out to, to bring about this miraculous sign. And then we see last week, we saw the Roman official sought Jesus to come and heal his child. But now we see that Jesus is on a mission. As he comes into the city of Jerusalem on this specific day, he's on a mission because he's going to go to the low. He's going to go to the ones that are in need. And he is going to seek them even though they are not seeking him in the first place. He is on a mission to heal and to seek and to save those that are lost. He's even on a mission to seek and to save those that aren't looking for him. Next, what we see in this passage about Jesus is that Jesus has the authority not only to heal, but we see that Jesus also has the authority and the power to forgive, which I think in the world today is a greater thing. Because you can go to a doctor, you can go and be healed from your problems. If you've got a cough, you can go and be healed. But which one of us today, or any place in the world today, has the power to forgive someone that has sinned? Like how many of us can actually wipe away someone else's sin? We can't. And so we see that not only can Jesus heal, not only can Jesus turn water into wild, not only can he heal a, a, a hurting or a sick and dying kid, not only can he make a lame person walk again, we see that Jesus has the power also to forgive. And what we can also see through this passage, lastly, about Jesus is that not only is Jesus the Messiah, not only is Jesus the one that has been sent from God, but what we can see in this passage is Jesus is also God himself. Now what we see uh, through these two groups that we come in contact in this passage, we see that they had misinterpreted the signs and both were headed towards disastrous results. The first group of people that we see, or the first person that we see, that had um, misinterpretations of the sign of Christ was this paralyzed man. 
For this paralyzed man had placed his faith not in the person of Christ, not in the work of God, not in, the, not in God himself, but this person had placed their, his belief in religious superstitions. This paralyzed man and the other multitude of paralyzed people were waiting around this pool for healing to come. And so they were believing and placed their faith in this, these religious superstitions. Now this was a common practice in Jesus' day. The people that found themselves to be lame or people that found themselves to be hurting or to be sick or in need of some sort of healing would go to these pools that were by the sheep's gate. And this was the superstition. The superstition was that there was healing power in the water, that when an angel or possibly an angel would come and stir the waters, the first person that got into the water would be healed. Whatever their ailment was, if they had leprosy, they would be healed. If they were blind, they could be healed. If they couldn't walk, they could be healed. And so this hope drove multitudes of invalids and lame to come and live near this water. And they placed their hope in the healing waters of the pool. So absolutely, they totally restructured their lives around the place or the object of their faith. Now, here's the reality of that. That's true for all of us. Whatever we place our faith in, we will restructure our lives around what it is that we believe or what it is that is the object of our faith. And so these people were believing and had faith in the water, so they continued to come, and they lived there until they had a chance to get into the water for healing. Now, superstitions aren't something that that we encounter today in our world do we? We're not superstitious people, are we? I love this commercial that has come on recently. It's a, it's a commercial about the Philadelphia Eagles fan who's tailgating before the party, and he's out there before his grill, and his wife packs him some veggie burger. You guys seen that commercial? I think it's called Koina or something like that. It's a Koina burger, and it tastes like, he says it tastes like raw bark or something really, really nasty. But as he's standing there before the grill, contemplating putting this thing on the grill to cook it, he thinks back and he says, well, my wife packed it for me last time, and last time I ate it before the game, and guess what happened to the Eagles? They won. So in his mind, he's correlating his actions along with how his team will do. So he throws it on the grill, hoping for another Philadelphia Eagles win. Now, are you guys superstitious in that way too? Anyone have some crazy superstitions? Like I used to believe if I, if I watched the game and my team was doing bad, all I had to do was turn it off and walk away, they'd do well. Because I somehow had the power to control the team. And even if I'm screaming and yelling, I'm not on the team, so I have no power. I have nothing over the outcome of the game except for to be a participant in watching the game. But we're superstitious people. And superstitions, if we give into superstitions and we live into superstitions, they will change the object of our faith. For the object of our faith must always, always, always be Christ and Christ alone. If our faith is in anything else, it will always find itself lacking. And this man, this paralyzed man, and all the other invalids were hoping in the power of this pool. And it wasn't going to save them. So we look at this man. This man in his condition, for the majority of his life, he's been paralyzed. We don't know how he became paralyzed, but we know that he's paralyzed. And one day in his life, he heard about the possibility of being healed through this pool. And so he and his family and friends had a large 
billowing of hope that began to rise up inside of them. If we can just get our friend down to this pool, maybe he will be healed. And so what do his friends do? What do his families do? They come and they make it in a way so that he can get down to this pool. And then what seems to happen after time is as time goes on, the hope which was really, really high at the beginning begins to dwindle and begins to fade. For every single day that passes, this man's hope of being healed becomes greater or less and less and less. And we see now on this day that his friends are no longer there, that his family's no longer there. Instead of seeing hope in this man, they turned and they saw his, his state and his place because he wasn't being healed. Instead of loving him and surrounding him with encouragement, they saw him as being cursed. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And so this man, has, as he's going through life, who once had hope and healing has been waiting his now life has been turned from hope to despair, to frustration, to disappointment, to accepting of his faith, and comes to the point of where all hopes seem lost. You know, sometimes in our world today, we, we translate this idea too, and we live in this idea that first come, first serve. We're like, we live by that. If you're here first, the first one here gets served. And that's how we sometimes live our lives. We want to be first. We want to be there first so that we can have the best choice or the first pick or we can have the opportunity to get what others don't get. But that's not the way it is with the Lord. The Lord does not say first come, first serve. He just says come. Come unto me and I will make you well. Come unto me and I will save you. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you know, even in the church, sometimes we take this first come, first serve mentality and we extrapolate it or we carry it over into our understanding of how the gospel works. Because sometimes we see that the gospel is hopeful in people, but as time goes on, or the more times our friends hear the gospel, less hope there is for people. We're also people that are tempted to follow and to allow the truth of statistics to determine the work of God. How many of you guys have ever heard the statistic, 80% of people that will come to know Christ do so before the age of 18? Have you ever heard that? 80% of the people that come to know Christ will do so before they turn 18. That's a a statistics that I think is true. It's been verifiable by by surveys and surveys and surveys and surveys. So the truth of that statistic, sometimes in the church, extrapolates into our mind to cause us not to have hope in the power of the gospel. We leave the power of the gospel away and we pick up this idea that if they're gonna come to know Christ, then they're gonna do so before 18. So everybody, every single day that they pass their 18th birthday, there's less and less hope for someone to change. When we do that, we leave the control of God out of the equation. We begin to determine the fate of people instead of allowing God, who is in control of all things, to control. I want us to believe and understand that nobody is hopeless. Everyone can believe, regardless of their age. And the gospel is for everyone. I'll never forget a, young, a, a lady that I met Her name was Charlotte, and I met Charlotte. She had come to the church where we were at many, many years. 
And her mom was one of those pillars of the church. Her mom was a Sunday school teacher. Her mom was like the lifeblood of the church. And her mom began, began to become aged. And she was in, in her early 90s. And, and her health began to dwindle. And by the time I became pastor of the church, she was no longer attending church. So my only interaction with, with uh, this lady's mother was in the hospital bed. And every time I would go visit her in the hospital, she wasn't really coherent. But her daughter was always there. Miss Charlotte was always there. Miss Charlotte was in her 60s. And uh, we had opportunities over the course of me visiting with her mom just to talk about life. And she would tell me that she, she hated the church. She hated going to church because it always reminded her of what she wasn't. And she went to church. She saw the church was full of hypocrites, that the people that she knew that said on Sunday morning they loved Jesus weren't walking with the Lord later on in the week. And she just didn't want to go to church anymore because of what she saw and what she did and what she experienced. But she was in a place where she was hurting because her mom was dying. And so over the course of months, as I had the opportunity to visit with Charlotte and visit with her mom, I just continued to pray for them. I continued to pray for her and continued just to be a friend to her. And I'll never forget the morning that it was the afternoon, it was the morning before her mother passed away. I ended up going over to her mom's apartment and she, Charlotte was there and her mom was in the bed and she was at death's door. And I remember just saying, Miss Charlotte, can I just pray for you? And I remember in that, that moment, Miss Charlotte and I just prayed, and I prayed that God would give her the faith that she needed just to trust him, that she would forget all of, the, all of the things and the barriers that she had against the gospel, that she would just believe that Jesus loved her and wanted to forgive her. And the next few hours, her mother passed away, and I didn't think I would see Charlotte again. But that Sunday morning, Miss Charlotte comes strolling into church. Mrs. 62-year-old Mrs. Miss Charlotte comes and sits in the church. And she's like, Pastor Jeff, I thank you so much for praying for me. And thank you so much for being there. And I know my mom's at peace. And so I hugged her and said goodbye. And guess what happened the very next Sunday? Miss Charlotte came to church. And guess what happened the next Sunday? Miss Charlotte came to church. And guess what happened the next Sunday? Miss Charlotte came to church. And it was about a month or two after Miss Charlotte kept coming to church over and over and over again that she said, uh, I want to meet with you this week. And I'm like, okay, well, let's meet. So the very next mor- Monday morning, she comes to my office. She sits down. And she says, Pastor Jeff, I need Jesus. I'm like, what? You, 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 I'm like, statistics say that that's impossible. You can't need you. You're 62 years old. You're set in your ways. You've got everything all worked out. You've got your plan. There's no changing you. She said, I need Jesus. The Lord has spoken to me over these past few months dealing with the death of my mom. And he showed me that I have been a rebel my whole life. I've been rebelling against God. I've been rebelling against the church. I've been rebelling against my mom. And she's a lady, a 62-year-old lady who has tattoos all over her arms. Very, very sweet lady. I love this lady. And she's sitting down and she said, I'm tired of being a rebel. And there in my office, she prays and she asks the Lord to be her Lord and Savior. And her life was radically changed at that moment. For in that moment, she took her life that was so destroyed and so hurt and so broken, and God began to put it back together. The 62-year-old lady, God begins to put it back together. And I remember the rejoicing on that Sunday morning when I had an opportunity to baptize her. There, were, there was much shouting and much rejoicing as this lady who is 62 years old has an opportunity to be baptized, not in a traditional baptistry, for at this time, we, the, our church was using a big water tank that was used for farming, and we'd cut the top off of it, 
And he had to get in this old rickety uh, swimming pool, a ladder to get up into the water. And this lady who's 62 years old, she's just loving it. She's beaming from ear to ear, just glowing and just beautiful that morning. And she goes in, she gets baptized, she comes out, and she's amazing. And she's shouting to the Lord. And this lady was on fire for the Lord from that moment on. And I just checked in with her recently. She's still loving the Lord. And she's found her place in the church for the church has a Wednesday night meal and she is there every Wednesday night helping prepare the meal for the family of God to come together in that place and just hang out. So she's still walking with the Lord and she's still loving the Lord. So the Lord is a God that takes things that look as though they're hopeless and he brings hope. So this young man or this old man, this 38-year-old man uh, is at this place where he's at a place in his life where he is, feels hopeless. And Jesus comes to him this day and he challenged his misinterpretation of the sign and he asked him this question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And I think that's the question. When we come to the place where we're at our most hopeless, where we're at our most low, it's the face of Christ that we see standing right there back at us. Do you want to be healed? How we answer that question determines whether we have life or we have death, whether we live or whether we die, whether we walk or whether we stay. For do you want to be well? And we see here the sick man answered. He says, sir, I have no one to put me in the water when the water is stirred up. I have no one else to help me. I am hopeless. I can't. And that is the place exactly where Christ wants us to be. When we look inward and we see there's nothing inside of us that can save us, when we look outward us and we see there's nothing outside of us that can save us, that's when Christ can step in to save us. And that's exactly where this man was on this day. Jesus challenges him and he gives him this monumental shift. Jesus commands him. He says, he says get up and take your bed and walk. And now this man who had lived his life in a place of hopelessness, where he was now at a place where he's ready just to cash it in and ready just to give up. He has an opportunity to either trust in the words of Christ and exhibit faith, or to just say, nah, I'm gonna stay here. And we know that there's enough in the words of Jesus here where he exhibits faith and he is immediately healed. Has that ever happened in your life? Like maybe you haven't been a lame person that, that was blind, but now you see, or you haven't been a person that, that couldn't walk, but now you can walk. But maybe you were a person that was full of sin and you came to the place where you trusted in Christ and now you're not the same person. I mean, have you experienced that radical change in your life? I pray that you have. Because Jesus is the one that can heal us if we will turn to him in faith and so as we walking through this passage we see get up take your bed and walk and once the man was healed he got up and he he walked and now we see just for a moment we enter enter in the other group of our day so it's as though the storyline is going along and the movie is going and we hear this great story of how jesus is interceding and and inner um 
in a discussion with this paralyzed man, and then all of a sudden you hear the musical score come up. Dun, dun, dun. You know what's coming next, right? When you hear that in a movie, you know that something bad is going to come next, and we see this in the very next verse. Now that was the Sabbath, so the Jews. Now that should be jarring to us in the storyline as we're following this because we see here it's now the Sabbath and the Jews. Jesus was being very um, consistent and Jesus was being very uh, outgoing and he was doing this on purpose. This occasion, Jesus was not only going to challenge the misinterpretations of this uh, paralytic or this paralyzed person, he was also going to challenge the misinterpretations of the sign from the religious. For we see here this, this man who is, once was lame but now is walking, is begin walking and he takes up his mat and he begins to walk and he begins to go and, and he sees these religious leaders, they see him and they begin to question him. He begins to be confronted by these religious people on this day. We see the challenge here and the, the irony here is this man who was, has been paralyzed for so long, now comes and is able to be around those that were religious, those, the Jews. Now, if we remember anything about the Jews, the Jews were God's people. So the Jews were supposed to be the face of Christ to the world. So it should have been that these Jews should have been to this paralyzed man, the one that was seeking to bring about ministry to this man. The Jews should have been the ones that were caring for this man. But instead, the Jews on this day, they see this man. All they have for him is bringing him accusations. They don't have love. They don't have mercy. They don't have grace. All they have are accusations. They were supposed to be the ones that were helping. They were supposed to be the ones that were showing mercy. But instead, they had turned their hearts to, be, to shunning the dirty. And so this man goes through this inquisition. And in his heart, I have to believe, as they're asking him, he's like, well, you guys didn't help me. You weren't there for me in my time of need. You weren't there for me when I couldn't walk. You weren't there trying to get me into the water. You weren't doing anything for me. And we see that he was completely also unaware of who had healed him as they're talking because they say that he had broke the law, that he was taking up his mat and walking. And he says, no, it wasn't me that said it. I'm just following the rules of the one that healed me. And then we see that Jesus seeks this guy out again as he's in the temple and he gets to the heart of the issue. Not only can Jesus bring about physical healing, but Jesus brings, can bring about spiritual healing. As he gives this guy the reminder, go and sin no more. I can heal you, but I can also forgive you. And he gives him this encouragement to not only walk physically, but he gives him this encouragement to walk spiritually. Walk spiritually so that you will continue every day to exhibit the same faith you did in that moment where I made you will. Exhibit that same faith every single day. Don't go back to superstitions. Don't go the route of religion, but walk in a relationship. And we see here that even on this day, the Lord is so gracious that he even healed this man. The man didn't even respond the way that you think he should respond. For in verse 15, we see that this man goes and sells Jesus out. He goes back to the religious leaders and says, it was Jesus that healed me. And what we learn from this is that not everyone accepts the mercy of God with gratitude. But the mercy of God goes out to those that God wants to have mercy on. 
So there's nothing, if you were a receiver of God's mercy, there's nothing inside of you that deserved that. You weren't smart enough. You weren't good looking enough. You didn't have the right parents. It was none of that stuff, but it was the mercy of God that came to you, revealed itself to you. And you came to the end of yourself and you accepted that. Now let's very quickly move on to the Jews. This is a story that we've heard over and over and over again, but I want us to be reminded of a couple things. For these religious people of Jesus' day had placed their belief in a religious legalism. They weren't hoping in superstitions, but they were living their lives in religious legalism. They lived and based their lives on following the, the rules. The more rules that you follow, the more rules that you obey, the righter standing that you have before God. So to be well, to be reconciled, you have to follow a religion. And so Jesus, here in this encounter, in the first of many encounters with the religious leaders of his day, he, took this, he says that you're taking the sign that God has given you through the law and you've distorted it. For this is the law. Exodus chapter 31 says this. This is God speaking. You are to speak to the people of Israel, and this is what God says. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you that through your generation that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So that was the law. That was the law that God had given his people. The Sabbath is set aside. It's a day that is holy. But we see that from the day that that was given to this time, the scribes and the teachers of the law had added additional interpretations and restrictions to the Sabbath law. They had added 39 different tasks that were prohibited on the Sabbath day. And this is the one that the religious leaders are pointing to on this day. Whoever on the Sabbath brings anything in or takes anything out from a public place or to a private one, if he has done this inadvertently, he shall sacrifice for his sins. But if willingly, he shall be cut off and shall be stoned. Now, what we need to understand is that was the mode of operation of the people of God in the day of this this sign taking place. It wasn't the law of God that was given, but it was the interpretation of the religious. And so sensing a great travesty, sensing a great violation, the religious here seek to bring about regulation. They want to know who's responsible and they want to know who should be punished. And the beauty of, of the word of God and beauty of God himself and Christ, we see is that Jesus knew exactly what he's doing. In healing this paralyzed man on the Sabbath day, he was directly challenging the religious practices of the day. He was, he was challenging the religious practice, not the law. So the religious here come to this man and they want to know who has done this so that they can bring about a great reprimand. And then they find out that it was Jesus, that Jesus is the one that heals him. And then Jesus comes back with some challenging words. He comes back and he shows them, is, is God not at work at all times? It's something they could agree on. He understood that the Jewish leaders understood that God is at work even on Sunday, that God doesn't take a Sabbath anymore, that God is working on Sunday. He's providing, he's allowing the sun to come up and the sun to go down. He's allowing it to rain on Sunday, that God is still providentially in control of his creation. So God is allowed to have activity on Sunday. So the religious agree with that. But then Jesus takes it one step further. 
because he claims to be sent by God. He claims to be on mission for God. He claims to be doing the work of God. He claims to be obedient to God. He claims to be bringing glory to God. And he claims to be God. He says that there has been no violation of God's law because if I am God, I'm supposed to be at work on Sunday. I'm supposed to be healing. I'm supposed to be doing these things. And so he was saying, Don't char- there's no charges against me and there's no charge from this man who has actually picked up his mat and walked because your rules, your regulations are not a part of a relationship. Those are about a religion. And so we see here, that these two people respond differently to the challenge of misinterpretation. The paralyzed man believed the word, but was challenged to believe in Christ. And we see here the religious were challenged to let go of their religion and come back to God. And we see that they, instead of responding in faith, they responded by trying to kill him. So my question to you today as we end, is is your faith in Christ, is your faith or hope filled up with a bunch of superstitions? Or is your faith, is your hope founded in truth? Is your only hope for salvation in Christ alone or are you hoping in something else that will save you or bring you to a place of reconciliation with God? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you seeking to continue to foster a deep relationship with Christ? And I want to leave you with the same question that Jesus gave this man. Do you want to be healed? Whatever it is that is ailing you today, we've all come in here today as people that are full of sin, full of of needing to be healed. So the question to us today is what is it in your life that you need to be healed from? Is it anger? Is it pride? Is your marriage struggling? Are your finances struggling? Are your relationships with your kids or your relationships with your parents, are you struggling? Are you in need? Do you need to be healed today? That if you do, the response is the same as this paralyzed man. Surrender. Let go of whatever it is that you've been holding on to. Trust in God and walk in him.